Welcome to the 87th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brennan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about how you don't always need Kubernetes, or maybe that you do. So we would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring our show. It's our very first sponsorship, and it's probably no secret to our listeners that some of us work for 42 Lines. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in visibility, cloud migration, cost control, security practices, and even team mentoring. So when you need the experts from the Practical Operations Podcasts on your team, please pay us a visit at 42lines.net. So Kubernetes, um, as, I, as I dig deeper into the stack and monitoring and securing and debugging it, I'm, I'm baffled at how extraordinarily complicated it is, especially for a small setup. I've got a, a little test environment that, you know, anybody who's reasonably experienced and can read can get a, a little GCE cluster, GKE cluster up and running in, you know, 20 minutes or so. And then with the operator paradigm or, you know, Helm or what, what or whatnot, you can get services running in Kubernetes on the cloud, publicly available in an hour. It's, it's not that hard if you can copy and paste and not really care to understand what you're doing. But there's a lot of moving pieces in this. And the, the stack goes really deep. And it, it makes me wonder, do we really need all of this? And there's yet more articles that keep pointing their way into my news feed about the cost trade-off of Kubernetes and microservices. And are these the right solutions for your environment? And... I look at at these solutions and there's a lot of, of technical progress and scalability and cool things that you can do here. But there's also quite a lot of fad and hype wrapped around the solution as well. And can we just kind of pull these apart for a little bit? Well, some of the articles I've seen, it's not just do you need Kubernetes or it can be read of do you need to run your own? Um, and I've been trying to get it set up on a little five-node Pi cluster. And my head is still bleeding from the number of times I've run into the wall because I'm not getting anywhere. It is incredibly complex to get all the little bells and whistles because everything's an add-on. And it's all complicated to get rolling. I, I agree. I think that's I think that's a good question. Is not not just should you use Kubernetes. I think the bigger question is should you run your own Kubernetes cluster? Um, because I think the answer for most people should you use Kubernetes. Honestly, in my opinion, is yes. But should you be running your own Kubernetes cluster? My answer would be no. And that's an interesting point to dig out of some of these articles that have been making the rounds. Uh, the article we're talking about this week is by Turner Taring. Um, and we'll have it in the show notes. Uh, let's use Kubernetes. Now you have eight problems. And one of the things this article doesn't talk about at all is, is it in reference to building and maintaining your own Kubernetes setup? Or is it in reference to using Amazon EKS or Google GKE or one of the other hosted options? Or rolling your own Docker scheduler. Don't. Exactly. And I, and I, that's that's my fear with some of these articles is that people will walk away with this like, oh, I shouldn't use Kubernetes. 
well, I guess I'll just write this 200-line shell script to help manage my containers and volumes and all this stuff, and you'll just run into so many edge cases that... And I think that's one of the reasons why Kubernetes is so deep, is that it's trying to solve a lot of the problems people run into when trying to do a large Docker deployment. Well, cu- Large being the keyword. Yeah, Kubernetes is... is- as best I can tell, was trying to solve for the stateless service approach that Docker originally was kind of growing up around. The idea that you have these ephemeral microservices. We, we talked about this recently. We talked about this before on, the, on this show. But you have th- this approach to, hey, we're, we're solving for this particular use case. And then, hey, well, what about, hey, we, we want to have clustering. Hey, we want to have service discovery. Hey, we want to have stateful sets. Hey, we want to have... And pretty soon you well, have... you solve for one use case and you realize this that one use case incorporates several edge cases and, you know, the dominoes start to fall. Yeah, and it gets... Well, also, it was made for Google scale. Yeah, and how many, how many of us actually run things at Google scale? Yeah. Wow, have you ever known <laughs> us to be quiet? <laughs> that's that's your answer yeah i mean G- google allegedly has literally millions of active machines in their their data centers across the world i i can't yeah. think of anybody other than facebook amazon you know the really really netflix. big players that well netflix uses amazon they don't run their own stuff so who has that kind of need to write a scheduler of that size Almost nobody. And the scheduler has to cover everything. It has to cover all kinds of lifecycle things. It has to cover security. It has to cover container orchestration, bin packing, every, all the different edge cases and all the different uses. And so, yeah, it's... I, I would not wish anybody on going and hand-building Kubernetes. Ever. Like, I just think Done. it's... At this point, it's... it. It reminds me of the early distributions of of Linux where you could actually kind of roll your own distribution. You could, you know, pick and choose parts and things and whatever and have your own bespoke distribution. But nobody does it anymore, really. I mean, yes, there are very small subsets of people that actually go and do exactly that. But by and large, when people say Linux, they ref- they're referring to one of, you know, two or three really large distributions. And that's it. Side note, uh, I do have to give credit to the Gentoo uh, wiki back in the day that forced me to learn like file systems real well and compiling your kernel and that kind of stuff because, uh, yeah, that really helped me learn the internals of Linux. The Arch wiki is awesome. Yeah, it, I think the Arch wiki has kind of taken over because didn't the... Yeah. Uh, yeah. In exactly the same way. Yeah, it has like down at the lowest levels of... You're trying to configure this thing. You're trying to build. How does this tool work? Why Why do I have it? Why do I need it? It It tells you in really good detail. So points to them. Well, and that's, a, I'm old enough to have started using Linux on Slackware floppies and setting up Kubernetes from scratch reminds me of that where you have to do absolutely everything yourself. Yep. Including floppy number 37 being bad. Yeah. Been there, done that. Yeah, and so I think that's a fair point is, you know, if you're discussing whether you should run Kubernetes yourself or not, maybe there's a good discussion then to start looking at other schedulers or dun-dun-dun, yeah. uh, write your own, something like that, I don't, you know. But for most small companies, if you're already using a cloud provider, just go ahead and use their flavor of Kubernetes, hosted Kubernetes, and then you can benefit from the large Kubernetes ecosystem 
uh, as Brendan mentioned, operator or helm or something like that on top of Kubernetes or uh, versus, you know, trying to launch your own instances and then configure Docker, configure containers, configure load balancing, configure all the stuff that's already solved for you. Whatever happened to Rancher? A couple of years ago, I was looking at, you know, various container scheduling things for Raspberry Pis and is either Rancher or Rancher OS came up and was like, oh, this seems to be a relatively lightweight. All it's doing is making sure you have containers running and then you have the, 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 the ports, you know, natted out of the cluster. And that was it. It wasn't doing anything else. And it was lightweight and it was kind of simple. Does, did that die? Did that get consumed into something else? I, I think they, they did what a lot of other people do and, or did, and that's actually basically put their sauce on top of Kubernetes. Because hmm. um, a few others have done that as well, where they used to be like that, where they were their I own can scheduler, see and they Brendan just shrink down. They just <laughs> sucked in everything. Yeah. Well, you know, back in the day, I really liked Marathon, which um, the, you know, this ran on top of uh, uh, Mesos, just like Aurora does. Uh, but in my opinion, it was a little better. And then they became DCOS, where they were the d- data center operating system. Uh, and then it's just kind of y- yeah. And and now, uh, I'll be honest, I haven't been following up on them because Kubernetes just kind of stole their thunder. Mm-hmm. And OpenShift has gone through their iterations, that we've, as we've talked about on the show before, that OpenShift now, instead of being its tangled patchwork of projects and things that, whatever, it's now the tangled patchwork of projects that is Kubernetes under, under the covers. OpenShift 3, when you install it and you get you know a supported licensed copy, or well, not sorry, not licensed, when you get a supported copy via Red Hat, what you're paying for is their support running Kubernetes, because that's what that's what it is now under the covers. And yeah, there's a nice UI. It's when, when I, you want to do it on-prem, it's there. But Kubernetes has won in every measurable aspect. And if you're, if you're installing it on-prem yourself, if you're doing it on your laptop, Minikube is the answer. And if you're doing anything else, it's something like OpenShift. And that's really it. Like, don't, don't, don't go I mean, doing it yourself. The problem is... What is a cloud native app? Everybody is kind of in that space now, and basically it's buzzword compliancy for do you ship your app in a Docker container? Okay, well, how do you get that to production? How do you run that? Oh, well, you just tripped over Docker deployment, Docker scheduling, everything else. There is no simple solution other than Docker Compose. Is Docker Swarm still a thing? Um, for setting up, you know, one or two VMs, uh, for a small startup, small company, small operation team kind of thing. Well, so I, you know, Swarm's, uh, well, I haven't really used Swarm in production. I also haven't used Nomad in production, but I have used Nomad personally. Uh, Nomad's nice. Um, they recently added in uh, persistent storage. Uh, however, um, uh, and, and then uh, Nomad's a product from the HashiCorp uh, Corporation, so, you know, it's baked into the suite you know you can use uh vault really easily with it uh and the whole suite of, of software that they'd use um but you know it kind of falls short in some areas where i think kubernetes uh picks up like i i'll and i'll be honest i need to go back and look at their docs but the last time i looked uh the configuration stuff wasn't as strong as kubernetes offers well you guys are going to throw things at me for saying this and i know you're going to throw things at me but if you're running, you know, a handful of servers with a handful of apps, honestly, just put your Docker run commands in your systemd service files and treat them like a service and treat them like they're not Docker images. Just you have a service. I've actually been. I was about to say the same thing. Yeah, I've been afraid to say. Deploy your you... Docker containers yep. by configuration management and your init system 
Yeah. Especially exactly. if you what, have a small you manage your VMs, do it that way. The only, the only thing I'd push back on is I'd rather Docker itself natively manage stuff just because when you throw systemd in there, it kind of can cause to some weird issues. But yes, I agree. Yep, there are corner cases because they do the same thing. Well, and the reason I say systemd yeah. is that systemd has kind of taken over the mindshare everywhere. And if you have things that are not Dockerized, it doesn't force you to Dockerize every piece of everything you're doing. You can just say, hey, the things that are Docker are state are in Docker and the things that aren't in Docker they're just shell scripts and they're just it's just system decals and it's simple and don't unnecessarily multiply entities people so i actually at the house i only have one server running so i actually use swarm uh it's just a, a single node cluster but i use swarm because it can inject configs and uh, you can still do secrets and stuff like that so yeah i totally <laughs> do that because it's so simple and i can just still use docker commands natively on my laptop or in the shell and and i'm done with it so yeah and i, I agree. i'm I run my my Docker stuff is just Docker commands. I don't bother with yep. anything else because it's one server, four or five containers. It's not worth well, the extra overhead. As much as I'd like to do it to learn Kubernetes or something, which is why I'm trying to do it on, on my Pi cluster, but it is I've very I've been difficult. with several clients at this point where their fleet of machines is it's just CloudNet machines that lays down some system DNet um, that runs their Docker containers and you can size the VMs however you need to, to, to fit the situation. And that solves your packing problem. Off you go. It's simple. Yep. You know, we're start to, starting to answer the question originally, originally posed of, do you need Kubernetes? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I, I guess it, for me, uh, it's just like, I still, to this day, <laughs> I would, if someone came to me and said, what, uh, web application would you or what web framework would you use to write a new uh, company if you're starting a uh, business or whatever uh, I would recommend Rails because Rails has the largest hold on Rails is still the biggest framework out there you can fire, find uh, a lot of developers who know it and understand it it also has a lot of configuration uh, I mean convention over configuration so if you bring in a Rails developer and it's a Rails 6 app they know where the controllers are blah 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 all that stuff is it the most performant? No. Is it the best language? No. Is it the best whatever? No. But it will get you your MVP out the door quicker. And then once you get acquired or get more money, then you can sit there and spend time and debate, well, should we do this in Scala? Should we do this in insert hipster language here? And and then you could go and rewrite all, the whole thing to your heart's content. But to get started and to get moving quick, I would say Rails. And yeah, there's value in that. There's a lot of value of being able to position yourself to get your MVP out because multiple steps during your life cycle as a company, you're going to look back and say, the way we're coding this application, the language we're using, or the instrumentation we're using for configuration management isn't going to scale beyond X. We need to retool so that we can grow bigger. And having multiple iterations in the life cycle of your company where you're retooling to become more efficient is normal and healthy. You can't you can't just assume the end goal when you're a two person startup in a garage. Yeah, and I also agree with the Rails thing entirely. When I my first job when I was working with you, Jared, a couple many years ago now, it's kind of scary how long it's been. You sat me down in front of Rails and you showed me how to kind of init a project and get started on it. And it was less than two weeks, and I had running, like, we had effectively production applications that I had written in Rails 
having just learned Ruby and just learned the Rails framework. It is really powerful and really straightforward, and it's it's opinionated in enough that it gets you moving in the right direction. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. And and I guess that's the reason I draw comparisons because it helps you also make good decisions. Or it's not making the best decision everywhere, but it makes good decisions. Like if you use Rails, you get database migrations. A lot of other frameworks maybe not have that, or they're they're like, well, here's a uh, a, a thing for the reader to figure out how to do later on and it's no it's baked in here just like with testing and that kind of thing kubernetes is the same way it offers a lot of these constructs natively instead of being you know batteries optional framework where you have to bring stuff in and figure it out on your own and then you know you're probably not going to do it the right way and, and back to the whole do you really need kubernetes a lot of people's environments are i'm running a web app of some variety I'm running a database server of some variety and I'm running a load balancer of some variety. That's not a case where you need Kubernetes. I mean, Kubernetes can, can handle the, the automated pieces of failing and starting and linking things together, but you've got, that's, that's a three service definition in your configuration management tool of choice to start and stop programs on a handful of servers. That is not a case where Kubernetes really fits. Where it fits is I'm running a hundred instances of my application server and I want, I needed to be able to do a rolling deploy and roll back easily. Suddenly you've even gotten to the point where like Ansible is starting to feel a little bit unwieldy for that. And that's where things like Kubernetes or what is it? Elastic Beanstalk, whatever the Amazon service is that nobody uses um, for doing deployments. I kind of want to take that one step further in that, Clearly, you shouldn't be developing and running and building your own Kubernetes cluster unless you're big and have significant reason to. But even using uh, Amazon EKS, uh, Google GKE, whatever the others are, imposes a significant operational overhead that will probably consume um, an FTE minimal on your team. Um, I'm going to poke Ken really hard about this because you're running hosted Kubernetes, so you don't have to set up etcd and all the details, but you still have to know the difference between cluster auto-scaling, horizontal pod auto-scaling, and Absolutely. vertical pod auto-scaling, <laughs> and know how to implement those in your cloud platform provider. And just because you're able to host parts of your control plane, basically, there's still a bunch of of very complex details in understanding how that Kubernetes clusters work and running it within that cloud platform. That yeah, it that it's not as complicated. It's not as complicated as rolling your own, but there's still a lot of build your own that comes into it, even when you're in in there, because not everything's there that you think is. And yeah, as I've run into. Very recently, as part of my job, horizontal a lot of scaling is something you got to add to it, and it takes some effort. So Kubernetes reminds me of the first time that I was I sat down at a Linux server that was wholly mine, and there wasn't a senior admin above me to ask questions of. And I want to say this was many many moons ago, and I want to say that it was something like, okay, we need to have a moderately complicated Java web app running and some Perl scripts and some other things and authenticate to LDAP and here's a box, uh, go install Apache on it and go. And you sit down and you look at it and 
None of those pieces individually are all that complicated, but Apache has so many configuration options. And it's how do I do this to make it secure and performant and easy to read the configs and debuggable and and really quickly you get into this 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 kind of mental freeze of there are so many options. And I get the same sense from Kubernetes that there are so many different ways of of running a single service or a single thing. Do you want to use ordered bring up? Do you want to use parallel, you know, construction of things? What are the consequences of the two? Do you, do you want to do upgrades on delete or not? Because all of these things have knock-on effects to each other and you have to think through all of those different cases and there's lots of them. So then what's going to be the X in this uh, parallel universe then? <laughs> Honestly, I think it's something like GKE. <laughs> Where Google or Amazon or Cloud Vendor of choice abstracts away most of the, the details and gives you a relatively simple API that fronts um, the Kubernetes environment. And you have to know, how do I bring my containers and how do I pick from a couple of different templates of these are the things that I want to do. And you then aren't going in and doing config map edits by hand or whatever else. You're, no, you, you go and you click the buttons in the web interface and you don't have the crazy backends. Well, and, and, you know, abstracting, you know, looking at it like we've been discussing with in relationship to Linux as it's been, you know, we started out, you had to compile your own kernel every time. You had to know all the options that you needed. I loved compiling my own kernel. It's awesome. Me too. I did it a thousand times. And then you got distributions that had kernels built in that had, you know, the best options that most people would use. You and could still go in. After a couple hours of exactly. using you could go in and choose your own, or you could just use theirs. And then we got, you know, OSs that had all the normal stuff you could, the most common things you'd need, but you could go in and make changes that you need to. We're going to get there too, where you get a Kubernetes with a lot of the stuff already set up and ready to go. You can still dive deep and go make tweaks if you need to, but it's got most of the stuff set, set the way the average person's going to need. And you keep going. It's, it's just still new enough yeah, that it doesn't have the polish. I, I see that Kubernetes has so much freaking power. Um, I'm I'm looking at the cloud platform providers that we have today, and they're very much like the proprietary Unixes of yore. Um, woohoo, mm. we can all run SCO. <laughs> um, <laughs> really, he was getting sued. <clears throat> um, but... Once Linux became popular outside of academia and into a valid, this is an open source operating system that we can use in production, that was incredibly powerful for the Unix community. And it brought us all together under more or less one operating system, under more or less a POSIX-compliant open source sort of world. And no matter where you took your application, you could usually get it to run, plus or minus. And I really see that as as what Kubernetes is doing to the proprietary cloud. It's giving us the APIs that will be the open source version of the cloud. And it's not out of its infancy yet, or maybe it's in toddler stage, who knows. But it's the first cloud api that really all the platforms actually offer it's the only way you can move applications between azure and aws and gcp if you want to ish and on-prem and on-prem and i really think that with the 
the amount of momentum that Kubernetes has, this will be the open source cloud. This will be the set of standard libraries and APIs that we use to deploy our stuff and run our clouds in the future. And will it get simpler? Linux got a whole lot better after a few years. So I, I don't compile my own kernels anymore. I wholeheartedly agree with you, Jack. My my real question is: At what point do we do we see tools like Terraform start to fade into disuse? Because that that really is the the signal that people have adopted the Kubernetes as the, the cloud abstraction layer. Because Terraform, from my understanding, its original job was you can now you can you can pull back a little bit and have one API in one language for describing any of your cloud providers anywhere in the world. So you could talk to DigitalOcean, and you could talk to Azure, you could talk to Google, you could talk to AWS, you can do all these things, and they were all slightly different, but you had one tool. Well, you that, can't really cross the streams, but you can manage them all with one tool. Yeah. But when, if and when Kubernetes becomes kind of the default API for the cloud as you're describing it, then you don't really need things like Terraform because everybody's now running basically Kubernetes workloads. Or everybody and you can start to see the uh, cloud platform providers that we have today start to fade away and more focus on offering only Kubernetes-based services and becoming more generic. Well, I don't think Amazon will ever... So, yeah, we're not there yet. Amazon will never <laughs> contract its, its services footprint. It will always keep on adding more whatevers. And is, and is container-based orchestration the end-all, be-all that solves every problem? Because in your example, that it is, but I don't think it is. Yeah. It, oh, Ken, quit making valid points. And <laughs> believe me when I tell you that I'm watching it do interesting things with Kafka. I mean, it works, but it's interesting and not the good kind of interesting. <laughs> so, but again, it's still relatively young as compared to a lot of other tools that we've used. It really is. It's complex. Uh, we talk about on the show a lot about how hard it is to run distributed tools and applications well. Well, that's what Kubernetes is. It has really ambitious goals. In really the last couple of years, it became, you know, quote unquote, mainstream, kind of the default scheduling. It's not going to be perfect yet. It's going to have a lot of rough edges. All right. So, Jared, where do we go from here? <laughs> I think for the problems, it's trying to solve right now it is the best solution though oh by far yep by far yeah so and as it gets older more mature it'll start solving more problems but it won't solve every problem as no thing ever does i just hope they get and to me it's about pulling back the the hype sort of surrounding it yeah we all like new things and all want to play with the new shiny <clears throat> but i think there are an awful lot of use cases out there where Kubernetes is more complexity than than is helpful. Well, if you have a complex problem, you generally you can't remove the complexity. You can move it around, but you can't remove it because it's just inherently complex. Yep. That old adage that Pearl had of make simple things easy and hard things possible. Yeah. Possible doesn't mean easy. <laughs> oh, no. It's possible. Yeah. And anybody who's read somebody else's Perl script knows it's not easy. <laughs> I've committed that sin before on both sides. De but definitely one of yes. the guiding features that I use when I'm in a new situation and trying to 
figure out solutions to problems is can we strip away some of the complexity? Do we really need new five layers of abstraction? And usually pulling apart the abstraction and having some reasonable common practices about how we deploy applications, how we run Prometheus, that kind of thing, makes things so much simpler. In other news, just while we're on the topic of Google and Kubernetes, I got a couple of emails last week from Google, or the other week from Google, saying that they are changing a couple of their billing practices for the hobbyist level Kubernetes cluster that I'm running there. If you're running a regional backplane, you're going to start, they're going to billing you for it, and it's not an insignificant amount. You can't change from regional to zonal dynamically. You have to create a new cluster. Uh, but starting in June, I believe, um, only you get one zonal backplane for free. And if you want regional, you have to pay for it. And that's a, that's a significant change to how they're, how they're operating. So be aware. And I think that's their sort of standard practice of we're taking these services out of beta. Thanks for helping us test. And now we're going to charge you for them. Yeah, there was also a note saying that external IP addresses that had been free will stop being free sometime in April. So again, just if you're if you're a hobbyist, or if you're using it in a hobbyist capacity like I am, be aware that some of these things, um, charging is going to change pretty quickly, and my $0.85 cent a month Kubernetes cluster is not going to be $0.85 cents a month pretty soon. Yeah, I, and I, I think this is a little short-sighted on Google's part. I mean, I guess I'm, maybe I'm missing, you know, maybe they had a lot more abuse than they were anticipating, but... Uh, this is going to change how people deploy things or, or set up their clusters in GCE and and possibly make them change to another cloud provider because now, you know, the, that was one of the big selling points was oh Amazon charges you for your uh for your your master nodes we don't, uh and um now that's they both charge so I don't know I mean if you if it's regional you're saying I want something that has that uptime's that important to me. Well, that sounds but like something you pay Google for. Ending a beta program. I mean, taking off that beta tag means a lot to the enterprise world. Is Gmail out of beta yet? <laughs> no, sorry, that's that's low. <laughs> hey, hey, Google Reader, Google Reader's out of beta. Yeah, finally, yeah. It's real easy to maintain too. <laughs> sorry, I'm still bitter about that. All these years later. Anyway. We'd like to thank our sponsor, 42 Lines, for... Sponsoring? Yeah. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. So, that wraps it up for the 87th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. I'm Ken Mink. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Aurora got kicked out of the Apache project, folks. Ouch.